Welcome back to Wise Words, a podcast where we talk to thought leaders, innovators, educators, and artists about any and all things to do with education. Our guest this episode is Sebastian Thrun. Sebastian Thrun is an innovator, education entrepreneur, and computer scientist from Germany. He's currently the CEO of Kitty Hawk Corporation and the founder and chairman of Udacity, one of the pioneers of massive open online courses, MOOCs. Sebastian is also something of an academic superstar who made the H-Index as one of the top 20 most cited researchers in the fields of computer science and electronics for his work on the use of probabilistic algorithms in robotics. Sebastian was previously a vice president at Google, where he founded Google X, the company's semi-secret research facility, and Google's self-driving car team. As you would expect, our discussion focused on artificial intelligence and other advances in technology and their likely impact on education. We also discussed his experience with Udacity, MOOCs and nanodegrees, and the importance of making education accessible to as many people as possible. Immersed though he is in an ecosystem that is not short of hype, Sebastian nevertheless brings rigor and realism to his work and words, in addition, of course, to Silicon Valley's sunny optimism. As always, we welcome your feedback on iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a rating as it will help others to find us. You can also communicate with us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets using the hashtag wisepod. Enjoy the episode. Here with uh, Sebastian Thrun. Sebastian, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you. Sebastian, you're uh, uh, incredibly well known as the founder of uh, Udacity, the first uh, serious effort uh, at establishing an online platform for university level courses. You're also uh, one of the 10 best cited computer scientists uh, and um, professor at Stanford University. You've worked at Google. Uh, you are um, a, a deep insider, if I may say so, uh, in the world of, of Silicon Valley and uh, technology and how that impacts uh, on education. So what I'd like is, is for our conversation today to focus on, uh, on some of those themes, the themes that you are uh, best known for, artificial intelligence, uh, online education, uh, and what the future holds uh, in this exciting world uh, that is being created uh, in real time, uh, much of it in the place where you've made your career, Silicon Valley. So if, if I can start by asking you just to explain artificial intelligence uh, 101, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there uh, about what this is. Are we talking about the Terminator? Are we talking about HAL from 2001? Uh, space Odyssey. What are we? What are we talking about when we talk about AI? When we talk about AI, we mostly talk about machine learning. And machine learning, sometimes called deep learning, is a new way to instruct computers. Mm -hmm. In the past, to make a computer do the right thing, a software engineer had to sit down and write a kitchen recipe, a set of rules, mm -hmm. often millions of rules to make sure for every contingency the computer knows what to do. Yeah. That's not how we teach children. We don't give children a rule for every contingency. Yeah. Instead, we let them learn yeah. based on data. 
So AI machine learning is really the ability to give a computer data and have it infer its own rules and then use those rules by itself. Okay, very interesting. So in some ways it's it's doing, uh, replicating what happens with young children, as you say, for computers. Yeah, when I was a grad student, the computers were the equivalent of a frog brain mm -hmm. or a cockroach brain in yeah. size. And you can't really train a cockroach in many interesting behaviors. Yeah. And as a result, the work back then wasn't very remarkable. But now we've reached a level of data sets and computer power that really interesting things can be trained. Okay, very good. And I, and I think what you've just articulated also is, is the close uh, link between artificial intelligence and what we also call big data. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so in recent years, Google has, for example, trained a neural network to play Go, mm -hmm. and it's trained it in over a million games. Um, no human player can ever look at a million games. And as a result, it's been able to beat the world's residing Go champion. Yep, no, that's At Stanford, incredible. I've had a student team look into skin patches, images of skin patches, yep. with the desire to detect skin cancers, uh, carcinomas and melanomas. And after looking at almost 130,000 images, the computer eventually outperformed the best human dermatologists. No, that's remarkable. And... And what is what is your view? You know, we, we have this technology. So you mentioned computers uh, X number of years ago were the size of a frog brain, a cockroach brain. Where are we today? We have way uh, ways away from, from human intelligence. Uh, so everything AI today is extremely narrow, yeah. and extremely specialized. So the Google self-driving car doesn't know how to operate a plane. AlphaGo can play chess. Yeah, These are all very simple. We call them... Uh, uh, vertical um, silos, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and it's important to notice this because people often um, mistakenly think of AI as something that has human-level intelligence and can make human-level decisions. That's just not the case. It can really assist us with highly repetitive tasks, things mm -hmm. we do in and out. Any repetitive task that we do today, be it as a salesperson or as a spreadsheet analyst or as an accountant, or even as a lawyer, can be picked up by the machine, and machines can eventually mimic human performance. And how, I, mean, I know this, this is probably a question you get a lot, but how far away are we from human-level intelligence? Is that even feasible in your view? Um, I think it's not desirable. Uh, I think we always build machines that complement us. Mm -hmm. So if you look, for example, at a car, a car outruns us, but by itself can't do it. Yeah. If you look at agriculture, we've built now more than 100 years of farming equipment, and none of those machines can substitute the farmer. All we've done is we've made farmers more effective. Yeah. It used to be before the revolution that one farmer could uh, produce the food for four. Now one American farmer can feed 155 people. Yeah. And, and it's important to... to see it this way what we do is technologies we make we turn people into superhumans yeah we turn us into superhumans we can now pick up a phone and talk to someone in australia that's completely amazing but we don't replace ourselves there's no need to replace ourselves because in what we are really good at creativity decision making values and so on we should just remain human very good and many of the commentaries at least that i've heard and and some of the things that i've i've uh, read recently suggest that 
we may get to a point where we lose control of the development of AI, that AI will start to develop in uh, in a way that we will not be able to to control. Do you share that concern? I could imagine in the far distant future mm -hmm. this might occur. I think it would be very bad. Um, I think once it happened, we would learn from it and, and hopefully do a better job afterwards. But in the immediate uh, future, that's not the case. Again, yeah. we're talking about very specialized, becomes almost pattern recognition of doing the same tasks over and over again. So for yeah. example, the Google self-driving car drives you, you sit inside and it hopefully makes the right decision. There is the possibility that there's a software bug or something goes wrong and it collides yeah. with something else and even harms you. But there's no possibility for for intent, for the intent of harming you. This goes sure. way beyond the computer software. Yeah, but even before we get to harming, I think what you're saying is there's no possibility that that self-driving car will learn how to fly, for example, or how to pilot a plane. Yeah, I mean, if you look at technology in general, we as a human race have become more and more dependent on technology. And we use it in life-critical situations. We use it as a surgeon and a surgery table. We use it uh, in planes that were often controlled by autopilots. And we, we typically get comfortable with this if the net outcome for people is positive, if we end up saving more lives than we're endangering lives. Yeah. And I think AI will be no exception. We will use it for certain tasks. Some might be safety critical. But as long as the system behaves well and delivers as promised, I think we will adopt it. And, and to, to a certain extent, and I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm getting this right, but um, planes today pretty much fly themselves, if, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. And we don't seem to be overly concerned by it. It's actually really interesting. Most people don't know that if you take a commercial plane and it finds itself in bad weather, like strong winds or fog, the pilot is mandated to use the autopilot. Yeah. Hand flying becomes illegal. And that might be concerning, but consider that. The autopilot is hands down safer than human pilots, even well-trained yeah. human pilots. If you go back and look at major crashes in the last decade or so, you'll find that it's almost exclusively human error to blame. Yeah. So I foresee a future where we have planes even without pilots. Let's be honest, if the yeah. plane flies itself already, why do we have a pilot? Well, we have trains without drivers, so why not planes without pilots? And it used to be that elevators yeah. had um, people inside. You couldn't operate an elevator without a person. Yeah. So I think over time, as our technology becomes more and more reliable, there'll be much less reliance on humans. Let's let's turn, if you don't mind, now to to education. And um, uh, as I mentioned in the in the introduction, you founded Udacity, um, a uh, platform for massive open online uh, courses. And the very first one uh, that you launched was on artificial intelligence, and you had 160,000 people uh, sign up for it. Uh, say a little bit about what motivated you to go go down this path, because. You were doing very well at Stanford as a computer science uh, professor. You you taught a very uh, popular and highly regarded class. Why did you want to? Uh, yeah, on top of it, open I was, it up. I was running Google X, and you were running Google. So I literally yes. <laughs> made the class between two in the morning and four in the morning. There's no joke, and wow. the students would comment on how, how tired I looked. Well, <laughs> well and, and you I had still no managed screen. to fill the class. And yeah, so yeah. it was it was interesting. Yeah. Um, Udacity was born by accident. Um, I attended a conference where I heard Salman Khan speak. 
Sarkhan is the person that brought Khan Academy yes. to us. For those of you who are in high school or have a high school kid, it's very, very popular. And he was uh, giving a talk, talking about his tens of millions of students. And I was sitting in the audience thinking, oh my God, I boast about, about my, my, my 200 students at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, so I decided to open up my class and send out a single email that basically said, look, sign up for this class free of charge. And we expected maybe a thousand people worldwide be yep. interested in AI at the time. And, and, and just to remind people, it's 2011. AI is not a hot topic in 2011. No, that's It's right. an esoteric discipline. Uh, we got 160,000 signing up. Yep. 23,000 finished. Yep. And then we able to stack rank the best students at Stanford with the best students online and found that the best performing Stanford students was number 400, ranked number 413. Wow. So the best 412 students were people all around the world, not at Stanford. Yeah. Did you, did you do any analysis on, on those 400? Was there any kind of pattern or were they just sort of randomly distributed uh, around the world and uh, age groups? And So I was, I was tired. So I, I went to sleep most of all. And of course, we, we became an instant media sensation. Yeah. Uh, the massive open online course was born. And we never went back into detailed analysis. But we do know it's about 70% male. Um, it was US was the largest country, yeah. India the second largest country, yeah. a, enormous yeah. thirst for education there. We had about 2,000 volunteer translators that translated the class in almost 100 languages. Yeah. Um, so a lot of stuff <clears> happened around this time. And, and you started a movement because shortly afterwards, uh, I think Coursera uh, came about, then edX. Uh, so there was, there was a, a, a huge shift into, uh, uh, into this format. How do you feel the, the format has done in, I know it's only six years, but has it fulfilled in your view uh, its original promise, its original intent? Where, where are we in terms of online education? That's a great question to ask. Uh, I could cynically say there was no original intent. But yes, as I um, quit my tenure at Stanford, dropped my job at Google, the intent really was to bring education to everybody in the world and make yeah. it a basic human right. And on that intent, we have not delivered, hands down. I mean, we are many, many million students in, but there's billions of people. And we have not delivered because it takes time to gain the trust of people. We are very specialized on tech education, on things like artificial intelligence, self-driving yep. cars. And in that space, we've become a, a well-known name as far as I can tell. But I'm excited about the entire wave, not just my company, but also Coursera, edX, and other, others that you mentioned, trying new things and trying to reach people. Because in the end of the day, there's only one humanity, there's only one planet. And if yep. you don't stick together and, and help each other, we never make major changes. Having said this, the format itself has changed a lot. So yeah. the original MOOCs, um, I recorded myself and my colleague Peter Novik recorded himself in our bedrooms essentially in the middle of the night. Um, and yeah. they weren't very good. And what we learned very quickly is if you just give people like these recordings, maybe a few quizzes, your retention rate is like 3% from beginning to the end. Yeah. And that's just not a good product. And I was very open about it. I called our own work a lousy product uh, in the media. And uh, really thinking it ought to be better than this. Now we've changed the formula massively. We brought lots of companies on board that promise jobs. We have a certification called Nano Degree that companies accept. Yep. 
we mentor students, we give them personal feedback, we hold them accountable, we even use AI yep. to intervene to make the students maximum successful. And in, in the best cohorts, we get a 100% graduation rate, which is rare. Yeah. Uh, we get anywhere between 20 and 90% graduation rate, depending on how hard we work. Yeah. Say, say a little bit more about, about nano degrees, because I, I find that really intriguing. Because if you look at the higher education industry, you know, it's, it's really had this, this, I would say, very static model in the sense that, you know, the, the basic product, which is the three or four year degree, um, has remained largely unchanged for, let's say, at least 100 uh, years, if not longer. And yet you're coming in now with, you know, uh, uh, maybe what you've sort of provocatively called uh, mini or nano degrees. Um, say a little bit about, you know, again, what's the thinking behind that? Why do you think this is the right way to, uh, to package education? Or repackage. What we learned in the data uh, very quickly is that the predominant online learner that comes to a platform like Udacity is between 24 and 55, give and take, years old. Yeah. Some are 80, but it's uncommon. They're not 19 years old. And for a while, Udacity really built courses for high school kids and focused on inner city high school kids, financially disadvantaged kids, and tried to get them into college. But even in those classes, remedial classes that we built specifically for high school kids, the majority of takers were people that were over 24 and often had a college degree. When we looked at the data and talked to our students, we realized that there's an entire segment of the population that is presently completely neglected by education institutions. And these are lifelong learners. These are people that already have some education under their buckle but wish to improve their career, get a promotion, feel more accepted and utilized in their jobs. And if you are, say, my age, and you want to learn interesting new skills, there's almost nobody to turn to. I'm not going to go into a college with like 17-year-olds yeah. in the same bench. I don't have the time to go to community college. And community colleges often are not that good because mm -hmm. it's hard for them to extract great talent. So that segment is the one that has really become a Udacity fan on our fan yeah. base. So we drive, we now, I mean, we grow really fast. We've grown 5x in just the last year. And we can see how we can help those people. I should add, finally, um, the second dimension, which we've been very successful in, is international. Um, there's countries like Qatar and many others that have a, an amazingly uh, intelligent youth that really want to have a great life for themselves and later for yeah. their children that just don't find the right universities in their, in their backyard. Just look at, say, all of Africa. Look at uh, most of South America, Indonesia, most of India, when you, and, and, and many of the yeah. Middle East countries. When you go up there, you just don't have the same chance as you have yeah. if you go up next to Stanford. Yeah. So, so I'm, I've kind of heard, heard a couple of things. I mean, one thing I heard was this is, yes, this is part of a sort of democratization access movement. Uh, and the other part is this is really targeting the lifelong learning uh, or the lifelong learner. Uh, people who already have, you know, a solid sort of basic education, but they need to reskill, upskill themselves. Uh, so do you see yourself then as, as Udacity, as, as competing or complementing the existing education system. I mean, hands down, at the present point, we're complementing and yeah. not competing. And 
mean, even sometimes students come to me and say, I'm, hey, I'm admitted in a whatever, prestigious university, here's a name, and, but I like Udacity better, should I drop out? And I, I'm hesitant to recommend students to drop out because maybe I'm now becoming too conservative myself, but there is a generic value in going to campus, interacting with other students, yeah. learning those social skills, and also getting a, a full degree. Um, I mean, as much as I hope that my, my company, Udacity, will be the company and the planet that changes the fate of the planet, I don't think I can vouch for us being there yet. And yeah. so I, 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 I want to do the best for the student. Um, but having said this, um, more and more students take us as a supplement. So when you really want to understand the latest skills in understanding how to build a mobile application, how to do artificial intelligence, how to do deep learning, Udacity now teaches more students deep learning than all universities in the world combined. We launched our curriculum the day Google opened up its software TensorFlow to the world, which has become the gold standard for deep learning. Yeah. And we've been so ahead of the curve that even from top-notch universities, we draw students who would like to have those skills under the buckle before yeah. they apply for a job. Yeah. And this, this, this fits, I think, neatly with your thesis of sort of technology really complementing and supporting us as, as human beings rather than, than replacing us. Um, do you envision a world um, at, at some point in the future where artificial intelligence comes together, say, with virtual reality uh, and gamification that can, uh, that can provide a sort of immersive experience that can address, I think, you know, some of the socialization issues that uh, we lack today. So I think that the, you know, what, what you were saying about the value of a, a, a campus education is the socialization. That's what's kind of missing from the technology piece. So do you, do you see that in the, uh, in the not too distant future? Yes, I do. As a possibility? I wish we move faster in the area of virtual reality um, so that there were more headsets available. But yes, I think the, the ultimate learning experiments ought to be exactly the same as the ultimate adventure game. Um, yeah. We had a student once taking one of our classes and she spent 26 hours on it without sleeping. And then she wrote a blog post and called the experience binge learning. Uh, binge, yeah. binge, like, like binge like watching. Binge, like yeah. binge drinking or yeah. binge watching. Yeah. <laughs> you can't let go. And to me, a learning environment succeeds if the student just can't let go. And I wish Udacity was close. I mean, we work hard to give students a great experience. We find that giving them personalized mentors and personalized coaches goes a long way in this process. So human touch is really essential in education so far. But I can foresee a future where the virtual reality is just so good and the AI is so good and the gamification is so good. This is the preferred method of learning. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, and again, from what I understand of the offering on the Udacity platform, it's not just the, the learning that's, that's, that's interesting. It's actually the students are working on real-time problems. So to a certain extent, it's, 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 it's also a platform that crowdsources solutions. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that blows my mind is um, when, when a new medium arrives, it's not just a replica of the old dressed differently, but it typically changes everything. Um, television at first was a literal recording of theater play yeah. But now we have special effects, we have animations. Yeah. It's a complete different medium. Televi I remember the television, 
um, in the early days uh, had radio reporters reading the news the same way they would talk into a radio microphone yeah. and it changed completely to, to what it is today and the same is true for learning when you go online uh, the very first thing you notice is that there's one constraint in the physical world that you don't have to obey and that is synchronicity yeah a normal professor uses their voice to teach and the voice disappears instantaneously as a result all the students that work with the professor have to have the same thought at the same time and the lecture becomes the predominant way of instructing students when you go online you can record the voice which means the students can play it back at their own pace but even more so you can now completely move away from lectures into projects where instead of having the professor show how to solve a problem have the student experience on their own you can't do this in a big classroom because students will all go in a project when you yeah. solve a problem by nature you go at your own pace and and the synchronicity doesn't work out but online it works out so we've taken Udacity and moved entirely away from the lecture into projects we have occasional short snippet videos that explain a concept or two but the core student experience 80% of the time is solving projects and getting personalized feedback on those projects yeah no that's that's incredible and and th there are other i think examples as well uh of of gamification uh coming in and contributing to solving uh um, some some tough challenges i don't know if you're familiar with fold it but it, it was set up uh i think several years ago uh and they managed to get i think three or or more papers published by uh, in nature uh, on on uh, protein folding yeah and they were and the, and the top players were non non scientists yes yeah, so the i think the top player as i recall it was a uh, british secretary yeah who happened to be a world class protein folder for those of you who don't know this on this podcast protein folding is a really hard task that drug design uh, companies need drug design companies can design a one dimensional drug string yeah but once they let it loose in, in the world, it, it folds itself into a three-dimensional structure, and that structure determines the function of the drug. Um, Folded was a crowdsourced site. It's a crowdsourced site that people play a game of yeah. folding proteins. And yes, there's been some amazing talent. For me, Foley has been an example of hidden talents, of talents yeah. you, you, you didn't know you had. Yeah. Like there is no PhD in protein folding. And even if there was the secretary in Britain probably would not have entered the PhD. Yeah, wouldn't even be aware that it that that's an option. Which is great because now we live yeah. in a world where we can try many, many different talents. We don't yeah. have to decide to be a lawyer when we are 17 and then be a lawyer until we're 85. Yeah. Now we can try to be a lawyer maybe in a day. Yeah. That's that's uh, sort of one one uh, maybe final set of issues to, to address and just change tack again a little bit. Um, We've, at WISE, we've been talking a lot about uh, uh, the, the fake news and uh, uh, post-truth phenomenon that we're, uh, we seem to be living through uh, at the moment and the role that social media and, and new technologies have played in, in, uh, uh, in fomenting this. What, what are some of your thoughts uh, about this? I think um, fake news has been around for a long time. Uh, coming from Europe, uh, where the Christian Church was the owner of any news and any scientific insight, and the earth was flat, and if you denied it, you might die. Um, there's a long history, um, yeah. and obviously the Middle East is no exception to that, these parts of the Middle East. Um, overall, I think society has gone the opposite way, 
they have used uh, the book and other technologies to really weed out um, good news. I think we're living in a, this is a momentary speed bump. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not concerned. I think Facebook and Google and, and Twitter will find ways to have users help them annotate what the correct news is. And people who wish to understand the correct news will find it. Uh, the thing that I do regret is that we've come to a world where we believe journalism should be free. And yeah. the price for that is that those curators that put a lot of work into really curating the correct news won't get paid. And that's the yeah. price we're paying right now. It's a choice that we've made by basically not subscribing to the various journals. Yeah. And I think that'll be that'll change. I think someone is going to invent a payment method that makes it easy to subscribe to all news sources. I think someone will invent a method where crowds can annotate news articles as false or right and, uh, and, 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 yeah. and, and bring truth to that. And I believe once we have a crowdsourcing editorial board that can look at news but like meet thousands or millions of people, we have even a more potent solution to correct news than we have today. So, so sort of adopt a, a Wikipedia almost approach to uh, editing and verifying and validating uh, news. Yeah, I mean, if you think about fake news, it's only harmful in so far it's been read by many, many people. Yeah. So if those many, many people, some among those will understand it's fake news, why can't they flag it and help us understand it? I bet I wouldn't be surprised within the next 12 months uh, Facebook mm -hmm. wouldn't come up with a solution yeah. like that. So do, do you think, I mean, talking about Facebook and, and Google and, and other uh, online uh, uh, companies, do you do you think they have a an editorial responsibility to some extent? That's that's debated. My personal answer is I wish not. I wish not. And I mean, to some extent, they have been uh, exercising an editorial responsibility all along. If someone is obviously breaking the law, um, th then posts have been removed. Um, but I, I really wish we find a solution that is scalable, where where the mm -hmm. world of yeah consumers of media assists also in the curation of those media. Um, if you can accomplish that, then I think we have a much better solution. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and curates, but in a, in a thoughtful, I suppose, an educated way, because you could, you could argue that, you know, at, at least on Facebook, we are curators of our own media. And in a sense, we're enabled by the, uh, you know, the AI behind Facebook in terms of, of what is then subsequently fed to us and, and, and shown to us. Yeah, I mean, the, the most recent discussion that you brought up about these echo chambers where fake news yeah. echoed itself is the concern here that there's entire parts of the population that basically hear what they want to hear. It's actually true for all of us. Yeah. That we want to hear what we want to hear. And it's always been true for all of us, yeah. but the, the technology is so potent, it's become a much bigger uh, factor. Yeah. And and quite frankly, I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg and others were aware of this when this happened. No, I'm sure. Well, I think we all found out after the election, yeah. we were a little bit shocked. Yeah. And now we have the world's best engineers thinking about what to do about it. Yeah. The problem ought to have a solution. I mean, in the past, we would pay a, a very well-selected set of editors at the New York Times and other places yeah. to do the selection for us. In fact, it's completely conceivable that a company comes up that edits face new Facebook news and charges some money uh, for it. But again, the world is full of so many great people, and I bet many people yeah. have a vested interest to make sure the world knows what's true and what's not, that that power itself might help us weed mm -hmm. it out. But I, I, I want to say that I share absolutely share your 
um, your, your concern about uh, society not being willing to pay for uh, for content. And I, I just, for the record, I've recently been sensitized to that issue and I now insist on paying uh, for content. Uh, and I have a lot of people uh, telling me that I'm I'm being silly because wow, why why are you paying for something when you could get it for free? I think I mean Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs, taught us an important lesson uh, when he asked us to pay a dollar per song. And I think people at the time felt a dollar per song was fair. Yeah, um, it was a good thing to do. I think my my issue today is we have yet to invent the company that fixes the following problem. Uh, today, to get my news, I have to pay a fee to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to the information, and a whole bunch of other sources. And then, of course, news, like songs, can't be copyrighted. So the yeah. moment it comes out there, about an hour later, it's out there anyhow. And what I would love to see is a platform where, even a donation-based platform, where yeah. every time I read a news article, there's a link where I can donate maybe, say, 20 cents. If I only donated yeah. 20 cents, I bet many, many journalists would be very, very happy. Absolutely. No, and I, and I think there, there are, I know there are podcasts that are uh, experimenting with the donation model and, and essentially saying to people, look, you pay, you pay what, you can, what you think you can afford to pay. Yeah. Uh, and and if you can't afford to pay anything, that's fine too. But if you can, please consider paying because that's what sustains uh, us, that's what keeps the quality yeah, and I think, at I mean, a certain level. Companies like Google, so yeah. if you're listening or... or, or um, uh, Amazon could quite easily handle the payment system of it so that I only yeah. put in my credit card once and then from there on I'm always uh, able to pay. Able to do that. Uh, Sebastian, I just want to end with, uh, with, with, with one question that we're going to start. Uh, we're going to start with you. We're going to ask this of uh, all the people who uh, are going to come onto, onto Wise Words. And, the, and that question is, uh, drawing on your discipline on your uh, academic discipline and your experience what is the one piece of knowledge that you believe uh, all of us should uh, should possess I think we should all be very very happy with our own ignorance we should know that most of the things we don't know and the reason why I say this mm -hmm. is I grew up in a country where most of my classmates knew everything. Okay. Or they thought they knew everything. <laughs> or I thought they knew everything, including some prominent family members who should remain unnamed at this point. Okay. <laughs> and when someone knows everything, there's just no space for learning. Mm -hmm. But yet what makes us really strong, what makes the strongest leader really strong, is this insight that there's space for trying something new for failing when you try and for learning from it no matter where you start at what level you start in life if you stop learning you stay where you are if you continue to learn you will outpace every one of those people who have stopped and become better than them eventually thank you for the wise words sebastian and thank pleasure. you for talking to us thanks, thanks for being on your series a new series good luck with it thank you Thank you.